All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, June 14th edition. Uh, we appreciate you guys watching us tonight. Kind of a slim panel tonight. We have uh, some people out on vacation and work. I know David Reese is uh, out uh, on vacation. I know James is in transit to New Jersey. So, And Shay is also out uh, with some family with some vacation. So slim pickings tonight for the panelists. Uh, we have Ricky Matthews and Peter along with us tonight. And our guest, Brad Panovich. Uh, we're going to be talking about tornadoes and straight line wind damage and uh, how people kind of get those confused. So hopefully after tonight's show, we'll be able to kind of uh, clear up some of those uncertainties to uh, to folks who are maybe received the damage from storms. So before we do that, this is a live broadcast. So if you are watching tonight and you want to follow along, some uh, submit us some questions. Uh, you can visit us on Twitter at Carolina WX Group. Or you can uh, send them through our Facebook page, and we'll uh, be monitoring both of those throughout the night. And if you're listening uh, on a rebroadcast, or maybe you're traveling a couple of days from now and you're listening to the podcast, we'll let Brad um, submit his uh, um, social media stuff towards the end of the show, and uh, you can reach out to Brad afterwards. So I think that's about it. Uh, it's been kind of a active uh, week, or yesterday was pretty active. Uh, today, not as active here in the Western Carolinas with thunderstorms, but it is that uh, typical summertime pattern where we get afternoon and evening thunderstorms. You can look at your watch, and about 1, 2 o'clock, they start forming in the mountains where Ricky's at, and then about 3, 4, or 5 p.m., they're in the foothills in the Piedmont where Brad and myself's at. So uh, it is about that uh, that time for those summertime storms. And Ricky, uh, you said uh, it wasn't as active up there in the uh, eastern in this East Tennessee area uh, today, right? Not as active. Didn't have as many storms in some of the uh, higher elevations sneaking down the valleys. We did have a decent amount across Southwest Virginia. What was interesting though is I did the morning show this morning, and I guess it was five o'clock or so. Uh, we started seeing this little teeny showers pop up across portions of uh, Whitney, Knox, Laurel, Clay, Bell, and like Leslie Harlan County, Kentucky. And that kind of was like an axis of rain for much of the day. I think it's where one of the outflow boundaries from yesterday reached and then it served as a trigger. But little teeny showers, a few isolated thunderstorms formed along that throughout the morning hours and we got in the afternoon and a, another little outflow boundary came down from actually Ohio, uh, made it all the way down into our region. It was really cool to watch it on GO-16, both the visible and the infrared. I, I hadn't seen an outflow boundary on infrared before, so that was a, a new one for me. So it was kind of neat to see the new temporal resolution and the higher quality of GOES-16 coming in uh, pretty handy. Yeah, and most definitely uh, enjoy looking at the new data, and uh, it's really cool to see see that uh, almost up-to-the-minute updates that we get. So, Peter, how is things up there on the uh, up in the northeast tonight? uh it's been very steamy around here that's for sure uh we've had temperatures in the 90s all week long uh and we actually broke a record yesterday of 96 at philly wow. international airport so it was pretty hot uh luckily today that we had a backdoor cold front come through and uh speaking of go 16 i could share this with you uh this was the satellite picture around seven or eight o'clock this morning you can see the thunderstorms erupting there uh, in New Jersey and New York City and everything. So it was uh, kind of an active morning, but it was just your general plain old thunderstorms, nothing too severe, just uh, a couple lightning strikes and heavy downpours. So really didn't wake me up. I was up already, so worked out good. But uh, yeah, we did break the heat, and uh, we're only going to be in the 80s for the next couple of days, maybe uh, some 90s again over the weekend, but uh, really not warming up uh, to anything too extreme. Wow, 96 degrees. We uh, we got in the low 90s uh, yesterday and today. 
uh, here in the, in the western part of the state, but not that hot. So <laughs> kudos to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Ricky, uh, like I said, we have a slim panel uh, tonight, so I'm going to go ahead and toss it to you, and we'll uh, bring in our friend Brad Panovich, and we'll kind of uh, go from there. All right. I think they hit like 101, was it, uh, uh, Peter, up in like New York City or something? I thought I saw something like that. Yeah, somebody uh, hit really high temperature around here. So, yeah, it's been pretty hot. It's interesting, you know, the urban heat effect and how the airflow works. It's odd. It's horrible, Brad, as you know, trying to forecast summertime temperatures around here sometimes. <laughs> so the storms move in by like 3 o'clock or 2 o'clock, there goes your high for the day. Yeah, it absolutely. I mean, yesterday was one of those days where, um, you know, the clouds came in, the showers came in. We only got to 90 today. We never really got the storms until now. There's a couple left over, but we got to 92 today. So, um, you know, the, you know how hard it is the pop-up storms are to forecast. And now when that impacts your high temperature, it makes that whole forecast kind of difficult. And it's worse when people come to you and like, hey, should I cancel this today? And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Give me a coin. I'll flip a coin. And then. I, I had someone on Facebook uh, send me a private message saying, oh, it looks like I should cancel my plans going to the beach this weekend because it's going to storm all weekend. I was like, well, not really. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, pop-up storms every afternoon, but you could get half a day at the beach. I mean, I think uh, the apps, the, the thing that kills us with these apps are people go on there and they see 80 or 70% chance of rain for the weekend and they think that's a washout when in reality, that, that's just a chance of you seeing a pop-up storm in the afternoon for 30 minutes and 95% of your day is dry. So it's uh, it, it's difficult to, to tell people, hey, don't change your plans. There's pretty much a chance of rain every afternoon in the summer. <laughs> it's uh, I was joked with our anchor the other day. He was like, hot, humid with a chance of th thunderstorms. Like, yep, pretty much. You can stay up for the yep. next three months and, and be pretty right. And uh, yep. be pretty accurate. All right, let's talk about some thunderstorms because, you know, the summertime here, both in Carolina, both in Tennessee, Virginia, and all across the southeast, we get these pop-up diurnal thunderstorms which often can be pretty mean little cells when they collapse and the, and the cores come down and we get some gusty winds from them. It always seems to cause a little bit of damage and sometimes we get those extreme microbursts which people easily confuse between tornadoes and straight line winds. So let's clarify first off uh, the definitions for both a tornadic circulation for wind damage and then straight line wind damage. Yeah, well, you know, the, the big difference is, um, you know, with straight line winds, well, there's a certain damage pattern we look for. And there's actually a, a pretty good signature we can see on the radar as well. Um, the, these radar signatures, actually the microburst and downburst signatures are much more easy, easily identified on Doppler radar than even tornadoes sometimes because it's such a larger signature than a tornado, which is only maybe a couple pixels wide. Uh, these downburst signatures are, are, you know, huge, take up like parts of counties. But the only way you really know downburst versus tornado, um, unless you're looking at it in real time, is to go back and look at the damage. And when we look at the damage, when we're looking for tornado damage, we're looking for the way the debris is laying. One of the biggest myths with this is twisted trees. <laughs> you hear this all the time. A tree is twisted. That means it was a tornado. Well, here's the thing. Any vertical structure will always twist in a straight line wind. Um, if you've ever seen a stop sign or a road sign on a windy day, you'll see that it's going back and forth like this. Trees do the same thing in a straight line wind. So if they're rocking back and forth in the wind and they get blown over, the trunk is always going to twist. So the twisting of the trunk is not a sign. It's which, which way does the tree lay? Are trees laying in perpendicular patterns to each other? Which one is laying north, one is laying west, one is laying east? That's a sign of uh, rotation. Straight line winds, most of the trees, not all of them, 
are going to be generally laying in the in the same direction that the wind was blowing and it's usually over a much bigger area so in many cases we don't know tornado versus straight line until we go back and look at the damage but in most cases it's pretty definitive when you see the damage especially aerial um, surveys that's what makes drones so great right now if you see an aerial shot of this I, within seconds, I could tell you immediately, oh, that's straight line wind damage. It's actually pretty easy once you see it. Um, and, it could, and I think the thing that throws people off is the straight line wind damage can be very extensive. And, and actually, I would say that straight line wind damage is going to be over a much bigger area than a tornado. So usually when I see widespread wind damage, I almost immediately lean towards uh, straight line before tornado. Um, so that's how we really define the difference between the two. And just in the Carolinas, just uh, on average, wind damage reports we get, 90 to 95% of them are straight line wind damage. Only one of them will be tornadoes. So just statistically off the bat, you pretty much can guarantee that nine times out of 10, <laughs> any wind damage, roof blown down, tree knocked down, power lines, it's gonna be straight line wind damage. And you know, sometimes, it can be a little tricky to determine because I've seen some events where there's trees laying in somewhat different directions thanks to kind of that diverging wind pattern that comes down with a microburst and people are always like, well, it had to be a tornado because now you're saying it's in different directions and that's what I see. Yeah, and, and I think that's key. It depends on what part of the microburst you're in. If you're near where it actually hit the ground, you could have to the right all the trees go in one direction and to the left, all the trees go in another direction. But even in that case, Ricky, you know, the trees are going to be laying in two directions. Like one swath will be going one way and one swath will be going the other. In tornado damage, both of those swaths, you would have a bunch of trees going perpendicular. That's the only way you could do that is with a rotational, um, you know, rotational wind of a tornado. And here's the thing, too. Even in downburst, at the edge of the downburst, you get some vertical rotation. You get horizontal rolls. Um, and so sometimes there are gust nados even at the edge of these downbursts or outflows. And sometimes people will see those or see damage associated with that and assume tornado. Um, and that might be on the very edge. I think what makes um, downbursts versus tornado difficult is when you have both within the same storm. And I've seen a lot of surveys where some of the damage is a tornado. Um, the rear flank downdraft or a downburst occurs after the tornado lifts all from the same parent storm. And so you might have a mix and match of tornado and straight line wind damage. But just goes to show you how good the, the weather service damage surveys are that you can actually determine where the downburst stopped and started and where the tornado touched down. So those are probably some of the most difficult ones. But you're right, sometimes depending on where you are in the downburst, you could have trees go in different directions. It just depends on where the downburst came out of the tree or even came down on the trees you know, from above. Let's talk a little bit about downburst versus microburst because I guess, honestly, I didn't realize until last night, Eric Fisher was tweeting some stuff out in Boston about how the weather service there determined most of the damage was downburst and not microburst. And I guess I didn't realize there was a, a significant clarification perhaps between the two. Yeah, my, it's all it's all based on, um, and now it's pretty arbitrary. I mean, humans come up with this, but um, the size of the area covered. A microburst, it, by, by, by definition, is a micro area. It's a smaller area. I think it's two and a half miles or something like that. Um, and a downburst or macroburst has to be over an area larger than that. So it's just an aerial extent. Um, the thing I think that makes microburst very fascinating is because they are smaller and intense in some cases, especially like a wet microburst, they can be misconstrued as tornadoes because sometimes they are such a narrow path. And 
we see these a lot in the summer, these pulses of thunderstorms we had yesterday. Uh, it literally looks like a waterfall coming out of the sky. And when it hits the ground, it spreads out in all directions. And um, that's where you get some of the misidentification because that's that's a loud sound. When an 80 or 90 mile an hour wind with rain falling in like a narrow one or two mile area, that sounds like a jet engine or a tornado. Um, so people will hear that sound and think, uh, you know, right away, it's a tornado. And also you can go from calm winds to those 60, 70, 80 mile an hour winds in a short distance. So um, what was it last year, that, that awesome video that came from Eastern Tennessee yeah, that off we the lake? That. It was July last year, uh, July 9th, I think. It was Otago Lake where the big storms yep. came through. And uh, that line of storms, I never got an official number from the Weather Service, but my estimates were they had to be at least 90 miles per hour with some yeah. of that damage. I mean, some of the damage pictures that I've seen were enough tree mowage that almost looked like it was an EF2, EF3 tornado in some spots. Yeah, and, and that, that video from the, from the, the I think it was from one of the boats in the, in the, at the marina there, was some of the most amazing video and really the best illustration of what these things look like in real time. Um, it's a wall of water and wind coming at you. It, it is scary looking. It's it's more apocalyptic sometimes than tornadoes because it, it takes up the whole horizon. Um, so yeah, it's it's amazing to see those things close up. And now with you know with everybody having a, a camera on their phone, it's it's pretty cool to start seeing more and more real time images of these. And that's the thing, you know, you're much more likely. I would feel to be impacted by straight line winds or a downburst in your lifetime or even during the <laughs> summer than yeah. a tornado. The, the odds are astronomical that you'll actually ever even see or get hit by a tornado. Yeah, I think I think what in I think in North Carolina that we I saw something from the climate um, the climate office that they estimate that North Carolina gets like a hundred some thousand thunderstorms a year. Um, and what we only average about 16 tornadoes. <laughs> so, I mean, the odds just aren't in your favor. I mean, uh, just the fact that we get storms all the time, seeing straight line winds are, are much more likely um, than, than seeing a tornado. But, you know, for whatever reason, people, um, and, and, and I would say, I put some of the blame on us as broadcasters and maybe the media, <laughs> not as meteorologists, but um, we, we don't, we probably don't put an eff enough emphasis on severe thunderstorms. Um, they kind of take second fiddle to tornado warnings and tornadoes. And to the public, then that becomes, okay, well, severe thunderstorm isn't very important. When we know, you know, severe thunderstorms have so many different threats and over a bigger area that they probably should be taken a lot more seriously um, than we give them credit for. Um, I was just looking at that hailstorm in, in Denver, was it like a month ago now? I mean, I think it was like a $10.1 billion disaster from a hailstorm. That's more than any tornado outbreak we've had in like the last 10 years. Um, and that was a single thunderstorm. Uh, just because a thunderstorm is a much bigger storm, it can impact far more people than a tornado. Even the monster wedge tornadoes that we see on TV are a mile, mile and a half wide. That would be a monster tornado. These thunderstorms are 25, 30, 40 miles across. Imagine that amount of damage over that big of an area. They can just hit more things than a singular tornado. Well, on that note then, let's discuss kind of how we cover severe thunderstorm warnings because if a severe thunderstorm warning can produce more widespread damage sometimes than a small spin-up tornado, but for a majority of TV stations, I feel we would take a tornado warning much more seriously should we perhaps consider doing things differently yeah and I think um, 
and I think you've seen some stations go towards this, and even honestly, the weather service, the QLCS tornadoes or the quick spin-ups, um, they're sometimes they're not putting tornado warnings on them, um, and they're not issuing long um, duration warnings because by the time the warning comes out, the tornado's lifted. And I think for some stations, it's uh, to be on the air for 45 minutes covering a spin-up tornado that we know is not there anymore is kind of ridiculous. I mean, let's be honest. But I will say this, if, if I see a severe thunderstorm that I know is producing maybe not 60 mile an hour winds, but if I saw one that was, you know, had a history of 70 or 80 mile an hour winds and it was heading towards a populated area, um, in my market, a major town or city or a major outdoor event anywhere in our area, if I knew there was American Legion baseball going on, um, you know, over to our west in, in Cleveland County, um, you know, I would, I would be, I would probably go on the air with something like that, or even baseball size hail that I thought was going to impact uh, somebody. The hardest part is it, when you're doing these, we had so many severe thunderstorm warnings um, for marginal hail and marginal wind that you can't cut in for all of them. So it's really a case by case basis. Um, a good example is the Duratio. Um, back was it 2012 now, seems like forever ago. Um, you know, that I talk about a wind event. I mean, that was that was an amazing event. And that's the type of thing, if you see that thing coming, you pretty much have to cut in for that. Let's talk a little bit, Scotty, about how you guys do it. I mean, you guys at the Foothills Weather Network also deal with severe thunderstorms on a pretty common basis. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, it seems like we are um, microburst capital of the world. I mean, it <laughs> seems like we get three or four every summer. Uh, but, you know, we like Brad said, we take it by case by case. We love Facebook Live. Uh, a lot of our followers like to see that video. Uh, so if the storm is pretty strong enough, like yesterday and in, in the one in Catawba County, uh, off of exit 128 there on Interstate 40 uh, created a lot of damage. We were live on that, but uh, we'll, we'll post uh, updates on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, uh, let, letting our, our viewers and audience know of what's going on. But when we see those uh, those strong uh, storms uh, that, that we know has created damage, maybe in a county over, uh, and it, it looks like it's maintaining its intensity, we'll, we'll go in on a Facebook Live or, or a Periscope and and let our followers know but uh you know our area it seems like um has been hit by these a lot and, and a lot of our our followers are kind of i don't want to say scared but they're kind of aware of these and they they want to know more about microbursts because we, we've had so many here so uh you know it's situational awareness knowing knowing how strong that storm is like brad said if there's an outdoor event or you know um Tuesday night softball league, you know, church softball league. We'll we'll put that awareness out there uh, as well. So, uh, but yeah, it, we we try to stay on top of it by uh, by letting our people know on social media. And, and if it's pretty strong to severe, we'll we'll go ahead and do that Facebook live video and kind of um, carry it for maybe 10, 15 minutes, letting letting people know what's going on. Yeah, and I was gonna say, Ricky. You know, one of the things um, meteorologically that I think makes these storms interesting and difficult and um i've even had to make myself do this more often in the summer is you know when we're looking at radar data all of us we stare at radar data all day a radar scope or gr2 um to kind of detect these you can't be looking at the lowest level volume scan you've got to be looking aloft to see when these cores are collapsing and it's pretty cool if you if you, you have a gr2 analyst which i love you can sometimes see these cores develop you can actually see them descending to the ground and then spreading out but you know, we're so used to looking at that 0 0.2, 0 0.5 cut of the radar 
that the storm doesn't look that impressive, but you look at like 2.5 or above and all of a sudden you see, holy cow, there's like 60 or 70 dBZ <laughs> at 30 or 40,000 feet. So from, from just a forecaster and meteorological standpoint, um, you got you to make yourself in the summer months sometimes start looking at those other cuts of the radar just to detect these ahead of time. And then, you know, that's a critical thing. Even I had to come to that realization it's about a year or so ago when I was looking at a lot of these warnings. I'm like, why is this warned at all? And I'm like, oh, that's yeah. why. Hello, giant hail core aloft. Or, uh, yep. Yeah, you see that you see that thing descending and it's like, it, you know, it's it's just a mother load. It's a splat. It comes down and hits the ground and just spreads out. And you know, oh, someone, there's trees coming down underneath that thing. And Brad, I'm sorry, Ricky. I was just going to go throw in here. You know, we now have a lot of stuff, the mesoanalysis page by the SPC. It gives us a lot of good data. So we can't necessarily predict where these are going to happen, but we know that some days are better than others to, uh, to see these. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. The downdraft cape, that's your friend. <laughs> you start looking at that D cape. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is the highest D cape days are sometimes when you're capped and, and you don't think there's going to be a bunch of storms. Um, like today was a good example over Charlotte. It was sunny and hot for so long. And I kept thinking, man, if we get one of these updrafts to bust this cap today, there's so much downdraft uh, cape potential that you're going to get it. But it, it's like chasing storms out West. You can, you can bust hard on your forecast. <laughs> if that cap doesn't break or you don't have a trigger, then all that, that cape just sits there uh, useless. It's like having all this high octane fuel and no engine to stick it into. So yeah, the days like that, when I see those hot, humid, really scorching days, like we're in a heat wave, I think, man, if we get a core to go up, it's going to be game on for some downburst today. We had that just maybe about a month, maybe a month and a half ago now, where it was one of those days where we weren't really forecasting a ton of storms. We were expecting that cap to hold on and boy we broke that convective temperature and had some golf ball sized hail and some nice storms and it's a fun afternoon in the weather center but peter yeah, i want to get your thoughts i was gonna say uh, that's you know, one of those things like in the winter time with uh precipitation types you know yeah. we don't think about we're all oh, it's here's the temperature of the ground man that temperature up there and that inversion that's everything a half degree degree difference can make all the world a difference when it comes to severe weather why we need to build some uh, weather stations on these giant TV communication towers, get that <laughs> zero to, to 2,000 feet sounding instantly. Absolutely. Peter, I want to get your thoughts. You're a little further north, and, and you know, you guys perhaps have a slightly different mindset when it comes to severe weather and storms. I would say you don't see them as often, but sometimes you guys get more storms and fun than we do down here in uh, Carolina. <laughs> so what's uh, how are things handled up in Jersey? Yeah, um, we do see severe storms, but they're not as, I would say, I guess, bad as what you guys get down there. But uh, two years ago, actually, we got a pretty bad uh, straight line wind event. And, you know, people are arguing with me on Facebook and stuff saying, oh, it was definitely a tornado. You know, look at the damage, yada, yada, yada. And it wasn't. The National Weather Service did say it was a uh, microburst and whatever. But, um, you know, they're all arguing on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. And, you know... I guess because we don't get it as often up here, it's pretty a rare event. Um, you know, we had the derecho back in uh, 2012, I guess it was, or whatever. So these things don't happen as often. And uh, it's kind of like a big shock when we get it. And uh, people don't know what it is. Uh, you know, they ask all their meteorologists on TV and they're arguing with each other. So it's um, kind of exciting when we get it, I guess, in a way, because uh, people don't really know what it is. I mean, and it is really hard, even from a social science standpoint, to tell people, 
oh, well, what you went through wasn't that bad. It was, wasn't even a tornado. It was just right. some wind. But, you know, to them, it was probably one of the worst storms they've ever been through in their life. Yep. Yeah. That, I mean, the social part of this is really key. Um, we've conditioned people to think that tornadoes are the strongest winds on the face of the earth. And in theory, they are. They can produce the strongest winds on the face of the earth. The May 1999 Oklahoma City tornado still going down as the strongest wind detected on Doppler radar, 318 miles an hour. But um, these microbursts and downbursts can produce the equivalent of EF0, EF1 winds over a much larger area. Um, and like I always tell people, I said, you know, your house, your trees, your power lines, they don't care what produces an 80 mile an hour wind. They just care they get hit by an 80 mile an hour wind. <laughs> you know, uh, they're, they're not worried it was rotational wind. It, if it's straight line, 80 mile an hour wind is the, is the threshold for your roof to break. It's going to break when an 80 mile an hour wind hits it, no matter what that, what caused that 80 mile an hour wind. Could be a hurricane, could be um, a, a dry downburst. It could be, you know, a, a strong front in the in the in the uh, winter or it could be a downburst so um the threshold is the mile per hour it's the impacts it's not what causes it the label is always what gets us in trouble when communicating this stuff you know wind wind is wind uh yeah. very very true uh but brad i guess what really spurred our topic and interest in this uh, and we were talking about damage here uh, a couple of weeks ago out in eastern north carolina we had a, a, a straight line wind event that went through. I can't remember the town name, uh, so forgive me for that. But uh, you know, we saw a lot of damage in that area. Actually, a, a mobile home flipped over and stuff like that. And, and I think that's where people don't think that maybe straight line winds can do that. But and that's the reality. Reality, they can. Yeah, that, I think it was out near Clinton, uh, North Carolina, somewhere in that area. I remember that town. That was a, a big debate, and it was widespread damage. Uh, Ten thousand turkeys got killed. Um, some ridiculous number like that because it hit a big turkey farm. Um, and a lot of those buildings that were hit were really susceptible to these straight line winds um, because a mobile home, um, a turkey farm, and a, a barn, outbuildings, man, if you put a 70 or 80 mile an hour wind on that stuff, it's going to flip and break pretty easily. Um, but you had a lot of people saying it had to be a tornado, it had to be a tornado because the damage was really extensive. It was, you know, it was a big storm. And you get that. And Ricky alluded to that, that people, you know, okay, this. I've got all this devastation. It had to be a tornado. Um, and you don't want to discount the fact that, no, it wasn't a tornado. It was a severe thunderstorm or a microburst. It doesn't mean the damage wasn't bad or it wasn't a, a bad storm. It just means that's what caused it. Um, you know, if I get sick, um, I just know I'm sick, right? I, it, it could be several causes. I don't get caught up in what it actually is. It's like <laughs> if someone tells me, oh, it's just X, Y, Z, well, it still hurts, all right? <laughs> it doesn't really matter sometimes um, what you call it, but for whatever reason, people are really, they almost take offense to the fact if you tell them it wasn't a tornado because they went through a horrible experience and they want it to be the worst weather phenomena that they can think of and for mo many people that's a tornado so you almost diminish their their losses and their impacts by saying oh no i'm sorry it was you know a microburst um and you know what i try to do is not make it sound like no it's you know a microburst it's like hey look these things are bad these used to crash airplanes all the time at airports uh, i could tell you about we used to have disasters at airports all the time because planes would just take off and land in these things without knowing any better um, and some of the worst damage that I've seen is from microbursts, especially tree damage. So it's not that this is a, a lesser storm. It just means it's a different kind of storm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm recalling the flight that actually had an incident 
in Charlotte almost, or had an incident in Charlotte due to a microburst. Yep, um, it was uh, the old. It was it wasn't it was Piedmont Airlines. It was uh, or it was a U.S. Uh, airline. U.S. Air. US Air it must have been U.S. Air. Yeah, it, almost a huge disaster um, with that. And you know that's part of the reason we have the terminal Doppler radars now at most of the large airports. The main reason those were put in were for wind shear detection and microburst detection. And if you've ever looked at terminal Doppler radar, that's the one thing. I, I mean, I, there's a lot of things it doesn't do well. <laughs> it does really well on detecting low-level winds close to the airport. Um, it's not a replacement for the 88Ds and the dual-pole data, but um, for, for, for airports, they are really crucial. And um, you can, and I think in Charlotte, since we rely so heavily on the terminal Doppler radar, that's why a lot of times I see these a lot, and you see them on the terminal data, and you're like, holy cow, look at that downburst. Um, so they show up really well on that radar. That's what they excel at. How long do these downbursts or microbursts last? Um, not very long, right? No, I mean, they, you know, if you think about dumping a bucket out on your table, it's about the time it takes for that water to spill out and it's over. Now, you'll get a series or, you know, um, storms that will produce another microburst or another downburst. They'll go through a kind of a, a cycle where a new updraft will develop, uh, the core will descend, and another one will form. Um, in, in some of the strongest storms that are, you know, a prolonged downburst, it's, it's more of a deratio MCS kind of outflow driven thing. That's driven by cool pools and, um, you know, high pressure lot, the, you know, basically MCS as we call them. Um, you, you think more of the deratio, the long-lived wind events that occur over a long area. But the microbursts and downbursts typically, you know, they're short-lived. They do their thing and they're done. Um, and it's, you know, they, they splat down, the water comes out, hits the ground, spreads out like, like the, the wind and, you know, it's done. The storm pretty much collapses. And I think that's the thing that catches people off guard. A lot of these happen when the storm is falling apart right at the very end and the storm is done. And sometimes the, the storm uh, 15 minutes later isn't even on radar. <laughs> and Brad, that's the case that sometimes these storms don't really get that severe thunderstorm warning because it happens so fast. Yeah, you know, if you're not looking at the in-between um, volume scans, you might miss that collapse. Um, and, you know, I, 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 the pulse ones are the ones that are tough around here. When there's, like the storm motions the last two days have been like five, 10 miles an hour. So, you know, if you think about a thunderstorm, it's it's a, con we call it convection in meteorology for a reason, because it's up and down movement, like a convection oven um, with heat and cool. Well, good storms like to be tilted a little bit so that convection doesn't collapse on itself. When the storms are vertical, they go up, they'll fall down and kill themselves. It shuts off the convection. So sometimes that just up and down quick motion will produce it and be done. And that can happen in like 15, 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> and if you're not paying attention, man, that storm, that core, that's why Ricky said, the, the first couple volume scans look like, man, that's nothing. It looks like a light rain. And then you get one scan where it's like, boom, 70 dBZs and then done and it's gone. So you, yeah, those are hard because you, they don't look like much on the radar at first. Um, and it might just be a developing cue, but they'll go up quick and then fall on themselves and be done. So those are the ones that I think the pulse microburst, the pulse severe, which is like most of the summer months, those are, those are really hard to get a handle on ahead of time. Scotty and Brad, you guys have been around here, you know, in the Charlotte and Western Carolina area for quite some time now. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the craziest microburst or, or wind events that you've seen. Oh, man, Rick, uh, I was going to say, uh, Scotty has had quite a few up in the Morganton area that I can recall. <laughs> it seems like Morganton for a while there, like the downtown was always getting clobbered. And then um, 
I was thinking of one maybe it was last year or two years ago in Albemarle that um, was pretty amazing um, that came through and um, it, it the, tr the tree damage was just unbelievable. I mean gigantic trees just snapped in half um, that just produced a boatload of damage and then this is more of a deratio event but a, what, what gets forgotten on that April 2011 that was one of the craziest severe weather months I've ever had in this area because people remember that because of not only the Alabama tornado outbreak, uh, the horrible outbreak there, the Carolina outbreak later in the month, but there was two events in between. There was a big derecho that went across our area and it was so strong it knocked those high tension Duke power lines down. Um, and I remember the Duke power people were telling us that those, those big metal, you know, kind of those giant metal towers that, that carry the high, high, high tension lines, it takes EF2 damage, they said, to take those down. Those things were bent over. Um, and we had power outages here that lasted almost a week. And we also had a baseball size hail event that same month. So that month sticks out forever for me for all the severe weather we had. And, and for, it seemed like every other day we were getting severe storms. That was a pretty active month. Um, thinking of, there's two that come to mind. Uh, like Brad said, uh, Morganson about three years ago um, had a microburst that developed right over town. And um, the part of town that was affected the most was um, kind of a, a very um, old part of town with, with some of the bigger colonial homes and, and a lot of large trees. And so a lot of those trees ended up on, on people's homes. And so that was pretty devastating. I mean, you know, I, I think at, at the time there was 75, 80 mile per hour wind. So uh, that was the day before school was out. So, you know, it was kind of a uh, you know, the last day of school and a lot of kids were, were out that day and some of the schools were actually closed because of power outages. So uh, that that was one. And then um, last year or the year before that, there was one that hit in so, uh, southeastern McDowell County. Uh, in fact, it affected a, a Boy Scout camp. And, and luckily, uh, it was a week before uh, it happened on a Friday and Sunday is when the first group of Boy Scouts were supposed to uh, to come in and so there was a lot of trees that were down on, on the camping areas and where where these scouts would have been camping at so uh, you know I, I'm just thinking you know if it was two or three days later you know no telling what could have happened with with those campers where, where the trees that had fallen obviously where these boy scouts would be camping at so uh, I'm afraid it would have been very disastrous if, if it had been a couple of days later so those are two that that kind of come to my mind. Uh, and like you said, Brad and Ricky, you know, it seems like the western part of North Carolina here in the foothills is kind of like ground zero for those. Yeah, it, it does seem like it's that case sometimes, especially during the summer months when we get so many damage reports. But one of the things you know, around here as we've kind of discussed in this show several times before is there's a lot of trees and a lot of stuff to knock down. <laughs> and it's pretty rare nowadays to get a storm and a warning and it not verify or not get a picture from it. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that. Um, I didn't mute myself. I was going to say that. I, I think that thing that makes it so weird around here is the fact that what Ricky just said, just the amount of trees we have. Um, and I think that's the one thing that people kind of lose sight of. Um, it doesn't take a lot of wind to bring trees down. Um, and then a big giant tree falling on other stuff can do a lot of damage. <laughs> um, the, the, that Morganton storm, the thing I remember about that, and, and I'm glad that Scotty brought it up, was those old, tall, old growth trees, man, when they come down, they're like knives. They'll cut houses in half, obliterate cars. 
Um, and so it, if you can get a tree to come down, even moisten the soil up and get lesser downburst winds, the trees will do the damage. You don't really need the wind to do much at all. You just need to knock the trees over. And the tree canopy, especially in the Charlotte area, um, is one of the things this city's known for. It, we kind of joke that over in Myers Park, Dilworth neighborhoods here, the older part of town, where there's just giant oak trees. If we get a storm, you can count on one of those trees coming down. Um, and when they come down, they are taking something with it. They're just, they're, they're massive. Um, and so I think that's how, you know, we always seem to verify something in this area. It's funny that Ricky, you brought up that, um, like how we get so much here in the, in the Western Carolinas. I gotta see if I could share my screen here. Um, and I got this question the other day and I, you guys are more in the mountains than I am, but I, I, I always, I always kind of laugh at this because people think for some reason that the mountains protect us from severe weather. <laughs> and it's, it's gotta be one of the biggest myths that we have here. So I don't know if you guys can see this, but um, this is um, severe weather days per year from 2003 to 2012. I wrote this blog, I think in 2012 when this report came out, is Charlotte the new severe weather capital of America? As far as severe weather days, reports of severe weather, um, hail, tornado, wind, damage within 25 miles, the highest location in the country is the upstate of South Carolina and Western North Carolina. <laughs> we get, and now I think a little of this is population bias and reports, but um, we just get a lot of storms here. So, and we have a lot of trees, so it doesn't take a lot to cause damage. And as Scotty knows, and Ricky knows from working in this area, um, the mountains actually cause severe weather. We get this lee trough every day. We were talking about the top of the show. I know up towards Scotty and Ricky, the storms are going to form around noon to three. That lee trough by about dinner time is going to work down to Charlotte. <laughs> That's pretty much the summer pattern. So in many cases, our geography makes us more susceptible to um, getting these severe weather events. So yeah, it's um, maybe we are the severe weather capital of America. I don't know, um, but it certainly sees when you start when it sees like it is um, when you start looking at the data. I mean, when you talk about damage, I feel like I mean, let, let's, let's take it this way: if I'm a homeowner, my house gets hit thirty times during the year. I think that's a pretty bad year compared to I only get hit <laughs> a couple times a year. You know? So. Yeah, it's it's the it's the trees, and as the area grows, I mean, population is getting bigger. It's a bigger target for stuff to get hit. Which is even more terrifying if we ever get a big tornado outbreak one year again or anything oh, like that. But that's uh, I cringe. I cringe. I cringe if we get a tornado. I, I look back at some of the old tornado tracks from the '90s in Western Union County, which was all farms back then, is now half and three quarter million dollar houses, schools, and strip malls. Right? Yeah, in Western Union County, it would have gone through Wexall, Mineral Springs, Wesley Chapel, Indian Trail. I mean, it would have been. A devastating storm. If that same tornado would hit today, it would be one of the worst out, worst tornadoes in U.S. history. Just because there was nothing there back when that tornado went through there. And even uh, the tornado track in northern Cleveland through yeah. southern Catawba County. At EF4, yeah. And that was another area. If that was to happen today, um, there would be a different story than what happened back in the, the late '80s. I mean. Uh, that's yeah. another area that that's getting populated as well. Uh, Brad, one other thing with, with microburst uh, that that we see a lot of, especially in the summertime when it's hot and humid, is we see that potential for some rapid flash flooding. I think you guys saw some of that yesterday uh, in the Charlotte area. Yeah, we had about uh, man two and a half inches of rain in like an hour and fifteen minutes, um, which 
anywhere that's going to cause issues, but over an urban setting like Charlotte. Charlotte is a very, what we call flashy flood city. It's flash flood prone. Um, so we got a lot of flashy creeks and streams. Um, a lot of the creeks and streams are urban streams, so they're, they're kind of all paved around. The water rushes into them really quickly and the water comes up just as quickly. So we had a lot of rapid water rises in the McMullen Creek and Little Sugar Creek and McAlpine Creek. And we also had a lot of clogged storm drains, um, which help um, lead to a lot of flooding as well. So we had, um, and let's face it, we've had a pretty wet spring and summer so far. <laughs> yeah, everything's pretty saturated. So that, that water really popped up quick. And one of the things I think that led to that yesterday and also helps, uh, I look for, for wet microbursts is these high precipitable water values. We've had some really crazy tropical moisture over us. Um, the atmosphere is kind of water loaded up. So when it, when it comes down, man, it's, it's a lot of moisture dumping down in a hurry. Have you ever used the flash guidance from OU uh, during one of these events? Yeah, I, I use it. I use it a quite a bit to, um, to kind of get a gauge on what we need today to get, you know, flash flooding. Um, it's, I think it's a little conservative. Um, sometimes I think it's like, well, you know, three, four inches in like three hours. And it's like, in, in my experience here, two inches is kind of that magic number. We get a two inch rainfall in an hour, almost anywhere. <laughs> um, we tend to get flash flooding. That's kind of the magic threshold for us. Uh, so um, it doesn't take a lot in Charlotte. It's, it reminds me a lot of like Austin and Boulder, Colorado, areas where it just seems it doesn't take much to get flash flooding if you get the storms to kind of sit there and, and dump a lot of rain. And, you know, we run into the typical issues, people driving into the water, and um, hopefully we can we can start avoiding some of that. I think people are learning slowly but surely they can't do that anymore. Scotty, you know, just like us, you guys have a ton of water crossings up in the mountains. We had a picture come out from Clintwood's day, uh, and in that house that was flooded, maybe on fire now. I got to go look that up because I just got an email from our news department talking about that. Uh, but, you know, this house was completely flooded because of, just a random huge downpour that came across the afternoon. I guess I should unmute myself first. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we see a lot of that, and uh, especially in the southern part of the county, the South Mountain State Park, there's a lot of uh, like cabins and stuff, and, and a lot of those are kind of like these little man-made bridges that, that go over these creeks and stuff to, to get to these luxurious cabins. And, and a lot of those, some are flooded out from time to time when we get these, these uh, microbursts that kind of set over the area. So yeah, flooding, big part uh, of, of the story here in the western part of the state as well when, when we deal with these storms. Mm -hmm. Just one more threat to add to the, uh, the summertime fun that we see around here. Let's talk about <laughs> one more thing. And then uh, I think, we can pretty much wrap up everything. We got a few other topics we wanted to, to hit on before nine o'clock, but is there any difference, Brad, about ratios and straight line winds versus the uh, microbursts? In are, are there microbursts in a duratio? Ooh, yeah. So now, now you're getting into like how to start a meteorological fight, here, right? <laughs> you're like, I want to start a fight. Um, yeah, the definition of a duratio, I think, has been um, and. I think it is needed an update, and I think you're seeing um, the weather service kind of say, hey, we might have to adjust um, how we rate these things. It, by definition, some deratios are a family of microburst or downburst um, that can be classified. Now, the old the old um, classification was a distance. It was 230 miles of continuous damage, and then you had to have enough 70-knot wind report. I mean, 
the criteria was really weird. Um, and I think nowadays with, with social media and the amount of reports we get, I think you're always going to get way more reports than we ever used, used to from these wind events. And in some ways, that's a good thing. Obviously, some of it's over-reporting, but it should give you better resolution, at least of where the damaging winds were. Um, but derechos typically are one of those things like rating tornadoes. You don't really know if it was a derecho till after the fact. So I'm, I'm very hesitant to call things derechos while they're occurring. Um, I certainly, you know, there's parameters on the SBC side that will, derecho parameters that will help you forecast these ahead of time, but you really don't know for sure until after the fact. But that being said, I think one of the things you look for in the summertime are these ridge runners, these MCSs, these big thunderstorm complexes, Anytime you have those, I mean, growing up in Ohio, I remember those things as a kid. Well, I was fascinated by weather, obviously, since I was six, but I remember we used to get these MCSs that would start up in Minnesota, come across the Great Lakes, and like three o'clock in the morning, you'd wake up to the loudest thunder and lightning and downpours um, as these MCSs would come down over Lake Erie and come over Ohio. And, um, you know, there'd be all kinds of flooding and damage. You wake up next morning, not a cloud in the sky, <laughs> beautiful day. Um, and you're like, what the heck just happened? You'd have another sunny day and that night you go to sleep and another one of these MCSs would come down in the middle of the night. Um, so anytime I see that set up, you're always worried about, you know, maybe a long lived wind event. But as far as derechos, um, you know, classifying them in the, in the moment, it seems kind of silly. It's like looking at a tornado and saying, that's an EF2. It's like, you just don't know um, until after the fact. Talk it's a about, lot of wind. You know, we say wind is wind, right? <laughs> talk about starting a Met fight with rating yeah. tornadoes on the fly. Boy, oh, go down a, a bad road here if we wanted to. Uh, but you know, once I mean, again, though, the, your house doesn't really care if you got hit by a derecho or a microburst or whatever. At the end of the day, you're still putting a new roof on or digging a tree out of your uh, yeah. living room. Yeah, and I think, I think a good question that a lot of people would have is like, you know, why do we care so much about what it's called? I mean, cause that's a legitimate question. You know, um, it, I think it's because you just, you want to have an understanding of what's causing these things. So understanding the difference between a tornado, a microburst and downburst, you know, for someone whose house is damaged, it might not be that big of a difference. It might not matter or be a big difference of what, what it was. It, they just know something happened. But for us, so that we can get people ready for the next storm, we kind of got to know, we got to figure it out. And in, in the end, we really got to figure out a way to make people take non-tornadic thunderstorms more seriously. So how do we tell people like, hey, I know this isn't a tornado warning, but you need to kind of treat this like a tornado warning. And I've done that for severe thunderstorms with, I know that have 70, 80 mile an hour winds. Um, and you want to talk about why spotters are so important. That's why spotters are important because if I start getting ground truth of that kind of damage and winds, it's really going to make me go on the air and say, hey, this storm has had a history of knocking trees onto people's houses, rolling mobile homes. You need to take this storm seriously and do your tornado precautions for this severe thunderstorm warning. So that's why as, as a public reporting this stuff is, is really important to us because it could really help somebody downstream. All right. I think we've hit most of the major topics. Scott, anything else you want to bring up? No, I was going to say that was a great point there at the end, you know, being uh, – that people need to take severe thunderstorm warnings, you know, just as serious as tornado warnings, because uh, it only takes one storm to, uh, like you said, Ricky, to affect your home and uh, like he's putting a new roof on or digging trees out. So uh, that's a good point, Brad. 
All right. Well, Ricky, I know uh, we're, we're about uh, 10 minutes away from the top of the hour. And Brad, I wanted to also let you uh, promote you guys are doing a tropical season uh, kind of uh, special tomorrow night on, on WCNC. And I'm going to let you uh, talk about that a little bit and what you uh, guys are going to cover. Yeah, it's called uh, Tracking the Tropics. It's going to be on our station at 8 p.m. Uh, in Charlotte at the NBC Charlotte WCNC. And if, uh, if you're not in the Charlotte area, we are going to put this online. Uh, the whole thing is going to be on our website, WCNC.com, hopefully right after the show is over tomorrow. Um, I'm going to try to record a lot of it and post it to my Facebook page and um, my Twitter feed. Well, it's an hour. Our station actually gave us a whole hour from 8 to 9 to do tropical stuff. Um, a lot of the focus is on Hurricane Matthew, obviously huge impact on the Carolinas. I was actually, I went down to Edisto Beach, South Carolina yesterday and shot a lot of the intros and outros for most of this. And I'll be honest, I was amazed how much that beach has recovered from Matthew. Um, for folks that don't know, that was one of the hardest hit coastal areas in the Carolinas for Matthew. Um, the whole first row of houses on Edisto Beach were wiped off the ground completely. And the road that we were on, the main road, which is the, the beach road there, was under six feet of sand last year. Um, and you go there today, all those houses are rebuilt. The beach is totally replenished. Now, you know it's all new because all of the dune fences are brand new wood. There's all new benches. All the houses have all the decks and stairs. You can tell it's all brand new pressure treated timber. So you can tell everything is brand new. Um, but it's amazing how much they've recovered. And then obviously the whole flooding issue in Eastern North Carolina is a big part of it. Um, we're also going to look back at Hugo. Um, Hugo is one of those events that from Charleston up to Charlotte and up to the mountains was just a game changer for how people realize hurricanes can affect us way inland. Um, even with winds. And we're going to talk a little bit about insurance stuff. Uh, Bill McGinty did a couple pieces about, you know, what you need to figure out about insurance ahead of time um, for these storms, I think is really important because um, there's some interesting things about insurance, depending on what, how your house is damaged and whether the storm has a name or not, can dictate what's covered. Um, and then just simple travel insurance. Should you buy travel insurance during the hurricane season in case something gets canceled? Um, we actually did a little bit of um, Hurricane Hunter stuff because they visited Raleigh. So Sarah and John did some stuff with them. And uh, we also did an interesting thing that I, I was laughing at the time when we did it because I, I thought we were doing like a Sharknado story for a second. Um, <laughs> there's some research with shark researchers who have tagged um, great whites and other species as well as tarpons in the Gulf of Mexico with um, these tags which relay water temperature and conductivity. Um, and they found that since sharks like to gather in 80 degree water or higher, that this data might help supplement some of the hurricane models. You could have a whole bunch of sharks collecting data um, and maybe helping give you at least water temperature data um, at different depths. So I thought that was pretty fascinating um, little piece of research that's going on. So um, yeah, it's tomorrow night at eight o'clock. Um, Focus is on the tropics. We'll get you ready for the hurricane season and hopefully, hopefully, no Matthew this year for the Carolinas. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I was just texting one of our producers when I was a reporter too, and I was telling her that I am done with Hurricane Matthew. I never want to hear that <laughs> name again. After reporting on it for two weeks and covering the aftermath yeah. for a week, it's like it's one of those names oh. I am glad that will likely be retired. We're still fighting for money here in the Carolinas, which is a yeah. whole political debate. But you know, we've only gotten one percent of the federal assistance we were supposed to have, so it's uh, it's not going to go away from a story standpoint to this money. There's people, uh, there's towns in eastern North Carolina that might not come back. Um, that's that's another part of the story we did is, uh, you know, there's there's a couple towns in eastern North Carolina near the Tar River 
who the town people, even after the flood waters are gone, feel like people won't come back. Because in some cases, it's easier to relocate than it is to rebuild. So that's that's a real thought. Some towns could literally be gone off the map because of Matthew. I mean, North Carolina kind of was the the forgotten impact from Matthew yeah. to a degree. Now, looking back on it, one thinks about Florida's coastline, but uh, you know, flooding was horrific, as we all know. In, uh, Ten billion dollars in damage and forty-seven people died um, in North Carolina, and I think ninety percent of those people died after the storm hit water. Um, so it's yeah, it's. It, it, the worst kind of flooding, you know, the kind that slowly comes up for days and days and weeks and weeks. It's, I was telling some other day, at, we were talking about Katrina on the way down there. And I said, the thing that was, I remember about Katrina, how horrible flooding is. The water, it just, it, did, it touches every part of your house. It's almost like you better, you're better off just bulldozing your house and starting over sometimes when you get that type of water damage. It's just horrendous. It's the one thing you can't do anything about, too. I mean, it, no. it's, it's coming and there's really no way to stop yeah. it. So. It's, it's, hor it's a horrible feeling to see that happen to your home. All right, Scotty. All right. Early. Yeah, well, Brad, uh, we appreciate that one. Definitely uh, going to be watching that tomorrow night. So if uh, you don't have uh, – if you're not in the Charlotte market, uh, go on over to WCNC.com and they'll have that. And like Brad said, he'll post it on his social media. So, Brad, I'll let you uh, go ahead and promote. Uh, if our followers don't already follow you on <laughs> Facebook, yeah. tell them how they can. WX Brad is uh, on Twitter, and you can search me as WX Brad on Facebook. Same thing. Um, it'll come up with my page, which is Brad Panovich Meteorologist, um, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, YouTube. You can find me just about everywhere. My blog is WXBrad.com. Um, always good stuff. The funny thing about my blog is I've, I'm trying to blog more, but I've got a lot of good material in there. Um, I actually did a blog probably four years ago on this straight line versus tornado stuff, and it's it's an evergreen blog. You can always go back and look at it because um, some of the stuff we, we, we keep talking every year, something happens, and I'm like, oh, I wrote a blog on that a couple years ago. Go read it. And So it's a good place to go search if you're interested about any of this stuff. I usually try to at least uh, cover this topic once in a while. Well, Brad, we appreciate you coming on tonight. And uh, for those who are watching, uh, make sure you join us next week as we uh, are going to continue talking about the tropics with uh, the National Hurricane Center's uh, tropical meteorologist, Stacy Stewart. Uh, he'll be joining us, kind of give us an update on uh, what the uh, National Weather Service or National Hurricane Center is thinking uh, for this uh, year's tropical season. So Stacy will be joining us next week here on Carolina Weather Group. So. Uh, if that's it, we'll go ahead and log off tonight. Thanks for watching. Uh, we hope that you have a great weekend. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there who are watching, and we will see you next Wednesday night here on the Carolina Weather Group at 8 p.m. Have a good weekend.